Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hi again, this is Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to speak about uh, on the program is that uh, a documentary film is being made about America's response to the Holocaust. And it's being done by a filmmaker named Ken Burns. And he appears to be unaware of basic information or, for some reason, is trying to misrepresent the facts. And that's what I want to discuss now. Burns has announced that his forthcoming film will challenge what he calls the myth that President Franklin Roosevelt abandoned Europe's Jews. That remarkable assertion flies in the face of the historical record that numerous scholars have thoroughly documented over the years. Nonetheless, in recent interviews, Burns has claimed that during the Roosevelt years, the United States accepted more refugees than any other sovereign nation. Now, this is simply a lie, according to Dr. Medoff, who's the uh, an expert on the Holocaust. The uh, starting with 1933. The year that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis rose to power in Germany, America's immigration laws would have permitted the entry of 25,957 German immigrants. But the Roosevelt administration suppressed immigration far below what the law allowed. That year, only 1,324 German nationals were admitted to the United States. Smaller numbers came from other European countries, like 961 Poles, 864 Hungarians, 236 Romanians, and not all of them were Jews. Now, that's interesting. That's what the Americans did. The, uh, The British government in 1933 admitted 33,000 European Jews to British-ruled Palestine, plus thousands more to the United Kingdom itself, and small numbers to other British-controlled territories. In the years to follow, the contrast between the Roosevelt administration and the British government was even more stark. In 1934, for example, the U.S. accepted 3,515 German citizens, which was less than 14% of that year's quota, while the British admitted about 50,000 Jewish refugees to the U.K. and British territories. And keep in mind, people tend to forget this, that until the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the United States was a very had a very isolationist political faction that simply did not want to get involved in what was happening in Europe or in bringing in European refugees. Now, in the late 1930s, 
the British began reducing Jewish immigration to Palestine in response to the Arabs and to Arab tourism. However, even though they still took in more European Jewish refugees than the United States did. The, and it wasn't just the British. In 1938, when the Roosevelt administration admitted a little more than 17,000 German and Austrian refugees, both the British and the Japanese, who ruled Shanghai, each took in a similar number that year, and France also accepted more Jews than the U.S. During the years 1939 to 1941, the overall picture changed but the United States still did not accept more refugees than any other sovereign nation. As I said a moment ago, you have to keep in mind, the United States was extremely isolationist. They were still recovering their philosophy to develop after the First World War. The United States was an isolationist country until Pearl Harbor. The, from 1939 to 1941, the Soviets took in an estimated 300,000 300, Jews who were fleeing from Nazi-occupied Poland. This was far more than the number of Jewish refugees the Roosevelt administration admitted during those years. The, in 1942, the numbers admitted by the American British governments were similar. In 1943, however, there was a significant gap between the two. In 1943, the United States admitted 1,286 German immigrants. That's the number. The British admitted 8,507. And other small numbers to British territories other than Palestine. Now, the obviously these immigration numbers do not change the cruel reality of England's white paper policy, which blocked most Jewish immigration to Palestine, nor they change the facts about Soviet regimes' mistreatment of Jews in its territory. But the Numbers show that anybody who thinks the United States is very broad in allowing Jewish refugees is seriously mistaken. The, uh, none of these immigration statistics are a secret. They all appear in publicly available immigration naturalization service charge, which historians have been quoting for decades. The, if, People are not aware of this, that's cause for concern. But if someone is trying to make a movie showing uh, how uh, hospitable the United States was, then if, if they know the true figures, but is choosing to distort them, that's very troubling. The sheer numbers aside, there's the problem of moral relativism inherent in the argument that's being made. The Roosevelt administration's response to the Holocaust may not be minimized or excused just because other countries did much less than they could have. Moreover, is it really impressive that the president of the country's claim to represent high deals of humanitarianism was slightly more gener generous in admitting refugees 
say say the Japanese, who, who I know Jews here in Israel, who we came through Japan and stayed in Shanghai during the war. Is is that is a moral stand by which we Americans judge their country by comparing it to others? By the way, in in fact, and this is something I just discovered, the rulers of a, a country of, called Bolivia in South America took in more than twenty thousand Jewish refugees during the Nazi years. Interesting enough, make a comparison. The uh, the uh, the country of uh, Bolivia has 424,000 square miles. The United States has 3.8 million square miles, so there's plenty of room. So uh, the truth of the matter is that America's response to the Holocaust was very meager. One would expect better from the United States. So now we have a filmmaker who's going to put out a film bragging about how generous America was about Jewish refugees. And the facts are simply do not support such a claim. It's embarrassing, but America did really very little to help Jewish refugees. And that is on the record and can be shown. It's a true fact and something that the United States cannot be proud of. The next subject of a totally different nature is one that interests older people like myself. And that, I hope it, there are enough elderly or, or uh, aged listeners to the program who will find this of interest. The uh, University of Tel Aviv researchers have developed a musical test that can detect cognitive decline in old age. Now, cognitive decline in the elderly can be measured using musical tests and a portable electroencephalography machine, which I can say better by its initials EEG, while the person performs simple tasks. Uh, this is according to researchers at, uh, researchers at Tel Aviv University. It's a 15-minute procedure it doesn't need a neurologist or any other specialist, and it can be formed easily by any staff members at any uh, clinic. This study was developed by some doctoral students in Tel Aviv University, and they published an article in a journal called Frontiers in the Aging Neuroscience. And the title of the article is called Single Channel EEG Features reveal an association with cognitive decline in seniors performing auditory cognitive assessment, which is a mouthful. Now, what it does, it allows a routine monitoring and early detection of, uh, of cognitive decline and so that tr uh, rapid treatment can be made. The, um, there, are, there are other tests that uh, like uh, diabetes and high blood pressure and breast cancer. However, to date, no method has yet been developed to enable routine accessible monitoring of the brain for cognitive issues. This is a major breakthrough. The, the, um, 
Tested as kind are especially important in view of the increasing longevity and expanding elderly population. There are more old people today. When I was a kid, 70 was old. Today, 70 is relatively young. And people are living into their 80s and, and even into their 90s. So you're having more problems of old age. So... Uh, they, they invented a pocket-sized device that weighs about 55 grams, has all kind of electrodes and stuff on it, which I won't bore the listeners with. What happens is, and that's the bottom line, the subject is connected to a portable uh, EEG device by means of a band with only three electrodes attached to the forehead. And the subject performs a series of musical cognitive tests according to audible instructions given automatically. And they listen to short melodies played by different instruments, and they are, they are instructed to perform various tasks at various levels of difficulty while they're listening to the music. Or like one of the examples, they press a button every time a certain melody is played, or playing it only, for example, when a violin plays. Though... Uh, the, uh, and the, uh, the test includes, includes, includes musically guided meditation designed to bring the brain to a resting state. So uh, what happens is the, uh, they can tell whether or not someone's brain is functioning properly by how it performs tasks while listening to music. So, uh, the, uh, for example, the, uh, it's something now called the Mozart effect, which shows improved performance on intelligent tests after listening to Mozart's music. It has nothing to do with Mozart's music, apparently. Instead, the music creates a positive mood and stimulates people to a state that's optimal for performing tests of intelligence and creativity. So that's something being done by Tel Aviv University, and I share with the, this uh, news with my listeners, particularly my older listeners, this might be good news for us. The next item has to do with a number of uh, Palestinian organizations which have all kinds of interesting names that make it sound like uh, they're, they're doing good. One is called the, the Center of Defense for Children, uh, one's called the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees. There's one called the Union of Agricultural Work Committees. Uh, it turns out that our government has checked out, and they all branches of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, which is a terrorist organization. So several weeks ago, the army went to these offices, they're all in East Jerusalem. They blocked the entrance doors to the offices with iron plates, and they left a military order declaring them illegal. So what happened was that the European Union, which supports all these uh, organizations, got very upset, and they have what's called the Human Human Rights Office in the West Bank, and it said on Saturday that the reason cited by Israel's defense ministry to lock the, or the offices were vague or irrelevant. And he denounced this decision as the latest move in long 
a long stigmatizing campaign against these organizations. In other words, Israel sees these organizations as front for terrorism, even though they have very kosher names. And the European Union supports these organizations. Last month, nine European countries published a joint statement in which they announced that they would continue to cooperate with these organizations, citing that Israel does not prevent, present evidence that would justify the change of policy towards them. In other words, these organizations have very kosher-sounding names, but they're really fronts for terrorism, particularly in raising money for terrorist organizations. And the Israelis are aware of that, and they closed the offices. The European Union said they're going to continue to support these organizations. And they went on to say that should evidence made available to the contrary, we would act accordingly. In the absence of such evidence, we will continue our cooperation and strong support for the civil society and the occupied Palestinian territories. A free and strong civil society is indispensable for promoting democratic values for the two-state solution. This statement I just said now was made by the government of the Netherlands. So what's happened is you have organizations or all kind of kosher-sounding names that support uh, terrorism. They're, they're a... Uh, uh, a way of uh, getting money and giving money to terrorist organizations. The, um, by the way, when Israel, the countries that are, are bypassing Israeli law are Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden. And a lot of the people who work for these so-called kosher organizations or wanted by the Israeli army as suspected of being terrorists. And when Israel went into the village, several villages near Jerusalem to arrest some suspects who belonged to these organizations, explosives were thrown at the Israeli security forces and gunshots were heard in the area. And they, they continued, they arrested these persons. Uh, during the operation, violent clashes developed in which dozens of Palestinians threw show stones at the Israeli police. So what you have essentially is a bunch of organizations, as I said a moment ago, which have names that sound like they're do-good organizations. Uh, but uh, what they really are is a conduit for getting money and giving it to terrorists. If you, if you have an organization with, with a name like Defense for Children International, the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees, and the Union of Agricultural Work Committee, they sound like they're, they're only doing good, but they are a conduit for raising funds, particularly from the European Union, mostly from the European Union, and and then giving this money to terrorist organizations. The Israelis are, are know about this, and they've taken action. They've closed the offices. But the European nations claim innocence, and they uh, th and they are going to continue, despite uh, the Israeli uh, action, they're going to continue to support these organizations, which in turn uh, support terrorism. And these are the facts on the ground. 
and in the area known as the West Bank. It's something that doesn't get in big headlines, but something I think people should know about. And so-called uh, organizations to do good are simply conduits for supporting terrorism. The Israelis know it. The European uh, countries refuse to accept the Israeli understanding of what's happening. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Mordechai Nisan was a lecturer at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and he wrote a number of books that are very right-wing. And uh, I've read his books, and he's made some statements recently with the upcoming elections, and I want to share what I've learned from what he said and what he wrote. Uh, Israel is approaching a new general election, which is supposed to come on November 1st. There are a lot of controversial issues uh, that are going to be re not resolved, but voted upon in the election. We have to recognize the history because Israel has a problem or an issue. Is it really Jewish and, and democratic or Jewish and or democratic? People always use this term, Jewish and democratic. What does it all mean? So you have to look at some of the history. Back in 1985, the Knesset passed a, law, a basic law that said it forbid candidates who negate Israel as a Jewish and democratic state from competing in general elections. In 2002, an addition was made to this law Incitement to racism and support for armed struggle would further disqualify candidates who ran for election or who wanted to run. There was an Arab citizen named Azmi Bishara who rejected Israel's Jewish character. He sought to compete as the head of a party, an Arab party called the Balad Party, and the issue reached the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court justices ignored the strict letter of the law and decided in his favor that he could indeed, uh, although he denies Israel as a Jewish state, he could run for the Knesset. Uh, he himself, Bashara, coined the seemingly unobjectionable phrase, Israel as a state of its citizens but thereby denied its fundamental Jewish character. By the way, Bishara, who was a member of the Knesset, ran away from Israel in 2007. He was suspected of espionage activity and uh, on behalf of Hezbollah, a terrorist organization. In 1992, the basic law, Human Dignity and Liberty, prescribed that the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state are essential features of the national code. So what happened is 
democracy is elevated to be equal with the Jewish identity of the state. So uh, later, the president, Reuben Rivlin, would repeat on occasion that Israel is Jewish and democratic, democratic and Jewish. Now, you have a clash of values here. A clash of values placed on an equal plane would demand a choice between the two. The language of human rights and human dignity was an amplification of citizen rights. Indeed, the activist and self-defined enlightened Supreme Court here in Israel granted access for grievance redress all persons, citizens or not, even to Palestinian terrorists, appealing their case against state authorities and against the military. Israel's democracy was unique in generously extending rights to its enemies. Now, it, it came up in a case you don't hear much about, and I want to bring it to the uh, to the attention of the listeners. There was a an Arab Israeli named Aidel Kadan. Uh, he, a new Jewish community was built in a place called Harish. And Kadan, an Arab, an Israeli citizen, wanted to move there. The Jewish residents opposed his request based on the conventional Middle East norm that people live together with people that they are associated with. This practice takes account of the need to protect the cultural integrity of Jewish life distinct from traditional Arab codes. Now, Appealing to the, to the judiciary, the Supreme Court in 1995 accepted Kadan's plea. Nonetheless, the Jewish residents activated the authority of a community acceptance committee for new residents, and by doing so, they were able to deny the candidacy of this Israeli Arab. People familiar with the case suspected that the Arab Kadan it wasn't a question of individual rights or improving the quality of life, but as a veiled strategy to undermine Jewish settlement policy in the area of Wadi Ara. Ultimately, Arabs did move to Haris in significant numbers. Now, there's another, that was Arabs and Jews. Now, and we have another situation here in Israel. We have African infiltrators in tens of thousands Almost 70,000 crossed illegally from Sinai into Israel in the earlier years of this century. Their presence, especially in southern Tel Aviv neighborhoods, is a major social problem on the streets. There are waves of crime and a deterioration of personal Jewish security and a financial burden on a municipal budget of Tel Aviv. If you go to the southern part of Tel Aviv, you would not know you're in Israel. The people that you see are Africans. The language in the street is not Hebrew. And there's the real question there of uh, safety. So how would you stop all these people from coming to Israel? Well, the government's response was twofold. They built a barrier on the Negev Sinai border in 2010. It was completed in 2013. This was to prevent the massive invasion, and they promoted legislation uh, to incentivize the Africans to leave Israel and re return home. 
they would be giving money to go back to the Sudan or Eritrea. Uh, about 25,000 illegals did leave the country and they got paid to leave by the Israeli government. So they leave. Uh, the court then said paying them to leave was invalidated and uh, the uh, expelling the infiltrators was against their human rights according to the Israeli court. So what happened was that the court overruled the government and the Knesset and stood by the illegals against the citizens of Israel. Foreigners who flouted Israel's sovereignty and bullying the Jews made little impression on the justices of the Supreme Court, whose political agenda overruled that of the, ele of the elected representatives of the people. So now what's happening is the Arabs today are pursuing their goals with resolve. Arabs are visible and prominent, and I, uh, I live in Jerusalem, and all doors are open to them. They're doctors, they're pharmacists, particularly pharmacists, they're sales personnel, the garage mechanics, they're in high-tech jobs, and laborers, university professors, and bus drivers, TV reporters, and political commentators, and, and 2022, they were members of the government coalition. So these developments have altered the texture of Israeli society. Is a Jewish Arab configuration not simply Jewish, particularly in the mixed cities like Jerusalem? Arab empowerment is visible, which has politically significant implications. Now, what's happened is that along, along with uh, this, there is a galvanization of the Arab intellectual and political elites. For example, in 2006, the Committee of the Heads of the Arab Local Councils published a document called The Future Vision of the Palestinian Arabs in Israel. And what that document did, it mapped out Arab grievances and convictions. They stated Israel is the result of a colonial enterprise. The Arabs are the native people and the original owners of the land. The Nakba, which is the, what Palestinians call the catastrophe, was Israel's founding. And Arab parliamentarians flagrantly gave voice to these views. The, the objective defined for now is a shared homeland based on bilingualism and equality for all the citizens with appropriate national symbols of the Arabs and the Jews alike. In other words, dismantling the Jewish state is the logical consequence of this radical program. In 2007, the Haifa Declaration was released. It repeated some of the key points of the future vision, stressing that Arab Israelis are part of the Palestinian people and victims of a historical injustice. The remedy required was a democratic state that recognized Palestinian self-determination, which essentially would mean the end of the Jewish state. So the leadership of the Arabs in Israel 
are no longer limiting their goal to citizen rights, which they fully possess at the moment. The clear aspiration is now Palestinian national rights, not just citizenship rights, as articulated by many of their politicians in the Knesset. So this is a subversive Arab strategy to undo Israel as a Jewish state through the language and promotion of democracy, equality, and rights. The, uh, this is a frame of reference that it, which the Arabs are taking on more and more. They want to make this a bi-national state, no longer a Jewish state. The, the basic law as the Israel is a nation state of the Jewish people, which was passed in 2018, was a political response by the government uh, to the erosion of Israel's national Jewish character and legitimacy. That law stated categorically that Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people alone and only, and national self-determination is the exclusive right of the Jews in Israel. This sent a deliberate message that while self-defined Palestinian citizens in Israel enjoy individual and communal rights, they will not achieve national Arab rights. The symbols and appurtenances of the Jewish day will remain the menorah, the Atikva national anthem, the Hebrew language, the Star of David flag, and the law of return recognized the right of Jews alone to immigrate and become citizens of Israel. Palestinian refugees' return is not a right nor an option of this political calculus. So what we have is an attempt slowly. The Arabs, our leadership, are attempting to attain the same rights as the Jews, not the citizens' rights, but the name of the nation itself. The Israeli, the Israeli political left and center opposed the nation-state law as prejudicial and discriminatory against non-Jewish population in Israel. Now, we have a very, very serious problem. Every talk, everyone talks about Israel being democratic and Jewish, Jewish and democratic. Bottom line is, what does this all mean? Uh, so if it's going to be democratic, that means that if the Arabs gain a significant uh, number, let's say a, they become not 20% population, but 40% of the population, things will change very, very, it'll be a different country. So as long as you want to re remain a democracy, the truth of the matter is, as I see it, there's only one solution, or if not one, it certainly is the most important solution, and that is increase the Jewish population. Incidentally, uh, just as an aside, but it pertains to this issue, the uh, Arab women today uh, are having fewer children than they did uh, 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, I forget exactly what the number was, Per woman, but it's down now to something, something like four, four children. The, the Jewish women, the increase in birth is like a little over three children uh, per woman, 
which makes Israel one of the few Jewish communities in the world, and uh, as a, and not only Jewish communities, one of the few countries in the world which has an increasing population by birth. But I think the solution to the this uh, push for Israel to be both democratic and Jewish is to have, first of all, have more children. That's nice, but uh, you can only do so much. <laughs> but I think that one of the real solutions is an increase in uh, in Aliyah. I've heard people, uh, very, some very famous people, Jewish people, they come to Israel and they say, yeah, it's really a wonderful place. I know if I'm ever in trouble in the country in which I live, I can come to Israel. But we need Jews here, not only to develop the this, this state, but to increase the Jewish population. As long as the Jewish population is the major population here in Israel, it will remain a, a Jewish state, and we can keep saying that it's Jewish and democratic. But if the increase of the Arab population uh, is more than the Jewish population, and we end up but a significant minority of uh, non-Jews, we're going to have a real serious problem calling this a Jewish state. Jewish and state sound Jewish and democratic sounds nice, but what happens when the Jewish uh, majority gets smaller and the others claim that they want their democratic rights, which could include doing away with the Jewish nature of the state. That's a very serious problem. And uh, as I said, the only solution I can see uh, that would really bring in more numbers of Jews would be Aliyah. So coming to live in Israel is not just a question of searching for your Jewish identity or expressing your Jewish identity. Coming to live in Israel is to help increase the Jewish majority so we can keep claiming it to be a Jewish and democratic state. As I said, the problem is if the Jewish majority gets smaller, then we're going to have a hard time remaining both Jewish and democratic. So that's some food for thought. As I said in the beginning, I read this uh, recent articles in some books by Mordechai Nisan, and he's been extremely concerned about this problem of the Jewish and democratic state. Uh, for quite a few years, he's written a number of books, uh, and uh, everybody loves to use the word Jewish and democratic, but when push comes to shove, this might become a problem. And I just want to share these thoughts with the listeners, and uh, you can think about these things, and I myself continue to think about them, and, and I keep reading on the subject, and uh, hopefully it will be resolved by a large increase in the Jewish population, something that can be done by Aliyah. So Aliyah is not just a way for Jews to come here and express their Jewishness, it's a way of keeping the Jewish state Jewish and democratic. I might add that the Jewish people is an ancient people, and uh, we're pretty much now confronting what they call post-nationalism and globalism and multiculturalism. These are post-modern ideas, and they have the ideological force to dilute the state of Israel. People who vilify and victimize Israel as a racist apartheid state 
and uh, they say we conduct a, region, a regime of occupation and expulsion, and this is what we're being blamed for right now. And uh, we like to feel that um, we have a native... Jewish and Zionist doctrine, and we want this country to be a Jewish country. It's the only Jewish country in the world, and we want to make sure that it stays that way. Uh, I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. And I want to say a couple words about the upcoming election here in Israel. And I'll try to keep it simple so that the listeners will understand exactly how it works. There are 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset, and therefore, essentially, to form a government, a few parties have to get together, combine with each other, to get a total of at least 61 seats, and they essentially are the government. No party in Israel has ever reached 61 seats. Even the Mapai under Ben-Gurion I think the most they got was 40 seats or some number like that. So what happens is that all the parties make deals with each other, and when they get the proper deals, then they get together and they present themselves to the president of the country, and they say that they can form a government. Now, one of the bad, really bad things about this uh, system, and of course there are worse things, which I'll get to in a moment, one of the bad things about the system is that if a party, for example, runs a particular campaign telling the voters that they will do this and this for the country, but then in order to form a coalition, They have to make compromises with other parties who may have the completely opposite uh, feelings about certain issues. So in other words, if you vote for a particular party because you feel it has a certain position on an issue, that doesn't mean that if it becomes part of the government, it will indeed do something about that issue because they have to make compromises with other parties. So the parties that get together to form the ruling coalition have to make compromises with each other, which essentially could be in complete uh, diametrically opposed to what they told their voters and when asking their voters to vote for them. So therefore, the bottom line is that the uh, positions that a party campaigns on are totally meaningless because they may take opposite positions in order to form a coalition. That's one of the bad things about the system. The second negative thing, and this, to my mind, is really the worst thing in the whole system, 
is the fact that you do not vote for individuals. In other words, if you take a place like the United States, you have uh, congressmen running from a particular congressional district, and uh, theoretically he represents that district. Uh, when you go to the polling place in the United States, you're presented with a list of names. Let's say, for example, when they're having a uh, an election for president, they also have an election for congressman. So when you go on your ballot, you will find the name of, let's say, the Republicans running for president and the Democrat who's running for president. But you also have the names of the candidates from different parties for different positions, like governor, attorney general, or congressman. So you actually vote for someone. You see a name and you vote for that name. But what happens in Israel, that the parties only run on party lists. Every party presents a list of candidates, and since there are uh, 120 seats in the Knesset, the list can include up to 120 names. Now, obviously, nobody's going to, there's no chance whatsoever that number 120 on the list is ever going to see the inside of the Knesset, but they give, the, they, they give people the honor of being on the list. So I don't, I don't really know if every party puts in 120 names, but theoretically they can. So the problem is that when you go into the polling place to vote, you cannot vote for an individual. You must vote for a party. And when you cast your vote, you're casting your vote for the entire list, not for any single individual in the list. So even if you, for example, like the top three names on the list, it could be you really don't like number seven and number eight, but they so in a sense, you get a bargain. You vote you for your one vote. You get 120 names. So the bad part, really bad part, is that you can only vote for a party list. Therefore, the politicians do not feel themselves indebted to the electorate. They're indebted to each other and to the leaders of the party, so they can get a high position on the list and a better chance of being elected. Also, you find quite commonly in Israel that members of the Knesset jump from one list to another, regardless of what the party that they belong to or the party that they're going to stands for. Their goal is to keep their seat in the Knesset, and they look around for the best way to do it without any consideration whatsoever what the electorate wants. So in a sense, the Israeli Knesset is a closed cub, club of people who want to stay in positions of power and they do not feel in any way, shape, or form indebted to the voters. That is the really the Achilles heel system. If you want to put it grammatically, 
It's wrong to call these people representatives because they don't really represent the voters. You, with your one vote, <clears throat> choose 120 names, of which most of which you don't even know who they are, but your vote may get them into the Knesset. That is the, as I said, the Achilles heel of the Israeli system. And right now, we've just gotten into the uh, period before the upcoming fifth election in three and a half years, when the parties are looking for votes. I get telephones all day long from various parties telling me why I should vote for them. I gently, by the way, hang up the phone. I, I myself have not yet made up my mind who I'm going to vote for, but as I said, it's a, it's a bad choice. You, with your one vote, you choose 120 people, most of whom you don't know, and you don't know what they stand for, and you're not guaranteed, by the way, that once they get elected, they'll stay in the party uh, on whose list they got elected. So that is the problem of the Israeli system. It's a democracy, and it's not a democracy. In, sense, in a sense, it's a, it's a, I'm not quite sure, it's a dictatorship of the political parties who choose their lists. And uh, as I said before, it often happens that people get elected on one list and then they switch to another list after they're elected. So it, it, I guess it's still called a democracy because you vote. But on the other hand, you don't really know for whom you're voting. And not only for whom you're voting as individuals, you're not even sure of what the party will do if it gets into the government because it will have to make compromises with other parties in order to form a government. And other parties may stand 180 degrees out of phase with the position of the party you voted for on the issues that are important to you. But these are the facts on the ground here in Israel. You go in with your one vote, you get 120 names for your one vote, of which I guess you can call a real bargain, but you have no idea of how the people you vote for, for will act once they are elected. And that is the weakness of the party. But I just wanted to play this past the listeners since we have an election coming up shortly. Now I want to touch upon a number of small items that are not related to each other, but they describe what's, ha what's happening in Israel. And I think that they, uh, they should be of interest to the listeners. Uh, first item has to do with the fact that the state of New Jersey has a $1.5 billion trade with Israel. A lot's been made over the past five or six years in particular, and there is some amount of partisanship in our relationship between Jersey, New Jersey and the state of Israel. The, uh, the governor of Jersey, New Jersey came to visit several weeks ago, and he's been a strong supporter of Israel at a time when concern has been raised 
about the growing anti-Israel sentiment in the party of the governor, who is a Democrat. The, there is a Jewish population in the state of uh, Jer New Zer Jersey, close to 550,000 Jews, which is the second largest American Jewish community after New York. The, uh, the, the state is headed by a gentleman named Murphy, and uh, Murphy heads a state which, according to the Anti-Defamation League, has seen a 25% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in 2021 compared to the previous year. The Anti-Defamation League records 370 incidents in New Jersey in 2021, up from 295 in 2020. By the way, the numbers in Jersey are still less than the 34% hike in U.S. anti-Semitism in that same two-year period. The uh, Israel and the state of New Jersey have a strong economic part partnership. The volume of trade between them reached $1.55 billion dollars which was up from 1.33 billion in 2020, which is an increase of more than 16%. The state of New Jersey's export to Israel have grown by 41%, 41% from 327 million to 461 million, which is a 10% more than the average in any other countries according to the Office of the Governor of New Jersey. So the, uh, the, the state of New Jersey is doing business big time with the state of Israel. We're talking about import and export. And uh, I don't know exactly uh, what's happening with other states, but uh, I just want the, uh, I found this news item and I thought it would be interesting of interest to the listeners that the state of New Jersey does a lot of business with the state of Israel. Now I want to touch a subject which is quite serious. Of course, I'm not an expert, but I want to share my thinking with the listeners. The United States is apparently going to sign a new deal with uh, Iran that will allow Iran to become a nuclear power. Now, given the clear and present danger by, posed by what America will do, we can ask ourselves, why is President Biden grinding toward a sign-off on this bad deal? Why is his administration so locked into doing a deal at any price with the Iranians? And I think the answer, there are three answers. It's pretentious. The, the administration's self-deception that Iran sees the world the same way the U.S. does, that Iran wants to be accepted among the nations and cooperate with the world. But that's the heart of the problem. The United States has sought to engage a regime that clearly doesn't want to be engaged and sees the world differently. 
Furthermore, the U.S. believes it can seal off issues into separate compartments. Iran's nuclear program compartmentalized in one silo and its terrorist activities in another. Tehran does not, Tehran does not see the world like the U.S. does. They, have, they want nuclear weapons, and they assassinate people, and they support terrorist militias. This is their full spectrum of capabilities because they want to dominate the region, and probably they ultimately want the downfall of America and the West. Five U.S. presidents in a row have sworn to stop Iran from becoming a nuclear military power. Therefore, Biden wants desperately to believe that diplomacy can settle the matter, or at least that diplomacy can delay the Iranian bomb until the matter is the problem of the next administration. This is classically known as kicking the ball that down the road, kicking the can down the road. Biden is bound and determined to do a deal with Iran that somehow can be passed off as sufficient when it really isn't. The democratic world is no longer truly willing to consider the use of military force against Iran or anybody else, probably including Russia and China. It's even not willing to build a credible military threat against Iran. So what's left is uh, they, they, they solve problems on paper, and they simply push the problem down the road. The, it could well be, and this has been pointed out by some experts, that the Biden administration is wants political revenge, it's, it's wedded to reclaiming former President Obama's lost honor. They, they want to redeem Obama's foreign policy achievement. His biggest foreign policy achievement was the agreement, the nuclear agreement in 2015 with Iran, which Trump unceremoniously kicked out. So... They're trying to recoup Obama's diplomatic legacy from the dustbin of history. For members of Biden's national security team, all of whom served Obama previously, this is an unconditional crusade. They mean that restoring the deal with Iran means retroactive vindication for Obama and repudiation of Trump. So what's happening is that the Iranians might get a nuclear weapon because the Democratic Party and its hate of Trump is doing what it can to restore whatever Obama did, no matter how bad that is for Israel. So today, the American political atmosphere is partisan. And getting back to the deal with uh, with uh, Iran is important to them. They'll do, he'll do anything. Biden will do anything and everything and make all kind of nonsensical concessions to Iran to ensure that whatever Trump did is pushed into the dustbin of history and everything that Obama did is made heroic. So it could well be that the Iranians know this,
So they really have they have they have they have Biden bent over. Biden will give them their billions of dollars and let them keep their nuclear infrastructure all for the greater glory of the ghost of the Obama administration. The problem with that is that the victims will suffer because of this is the state of Israel, which is the first target for the Iranian nuclear weapon. So the politics in the United States and the desire of the Democratic Party to undo whatever Trump did could end up being a very, very bad deal for the state of Israel. And we have to look out for ourselves and for our own safety. So um, this is how I see the situation, and we'll have to see how things work out. I'd like to say a few words about the Muslim Brotherhood. We hear it uh, mentioned a lot. We see its name in the newspaper. But I don't think most people, particularly the people in the Western world, understand what the Muslim Brotherhood really is. Israelis understand that organizations like the Islamic Jihad, it's a murderous and aggressive organization, and it also has a smaller organization, a separate one, which is just as bad, called Hamas. Now, both the Islamic Jihad and Hamas are related and affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. While Hamas and the Islamic State and these uh, Jihad and all these other Islamic organizations are designated as terrorist groups, the United States so far has refused to designate as a terrorist enterprise the very organization that spawned the other ones. That is the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is uh, headquarters in Egypt, continues to churn out Islamic terrorists at a tremendous rate, which are actively seeking to undermine Western societies. The United States cannot continue to turn a blind eye. It is extremely important that the Western democracies, of course, that means led by the United States, it's important that they don't turn the blind eye and they have to tear down their ideological support that's provided by the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood essentially is the father of the, the ideological father of these other terrorist group. The Biden administration is made a rushed uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that facilitated the resurgence of the Taliban. The Taliban not only violated the terms agreed upon for its withdrawal, but it has provide, provided a safe haven for members of al-Qaeda and other jihadist organizations. In other words, when the United States left Afghanistan, they left a base, a real base for terrorism. 
Biden's policy, as I understand it, is a continuation of other American administrations' policies regarding Islamists and jihadists, and it has breathed new life into global terrorism. But according to some experts, this is not the worst part of the West failed policies uh, with the Islamists. The enterprise serving as the command and control of the world's radical Islamic theology continues to be the Muslim Brotherhood. Most Americans know names like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas. They know these names from the headlines which describe their strikes on civilians and their terrorist acts. However, the Muslim Brotherhood is the organization that is proselytizing American hatred to its members, those who stay within the organization as political soldiers, and those who are spun off to organize separate terrorist groups. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is that the the father or the mother, if you will, of all the terrorist groups is the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, in fact, the Muslim Brotherhood uses Al-Azhar University in Cairo to, to cover up for its political and radical agenda. Not yet indoctrinated young men enter Al-Azhar University in Cairo for a formal education and graduate with a degree in radical Islamism. The um, For those in the West, a doctorate, a Ph.D. from Al-Azhar University in Cairo is a sign of education and erudition. But that's not what a Ph.D. is from that university. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Taliban, and other organizations are largely products of Al-Azhar University of Cairo and its long-standing ideological program controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood. In other words, the Al-Azhar University in Cairo uh, is is the breeding ground of most of the Muslim terrorism. The Al-Azhar is painted as a leading institutional authority on moderate Islam. It really is actually an epicenter for radical Islamic ideology. All these other uh, organizations received their ideological indoctrination at Al-Hazar University. The scholars and jihadists are connected to the issuance of assassination fatwas. Fatwas may include an open order to murder or torture Muslims or non-Muslims, as well as excommunicating moderate Muslims because they consider moderate Muslims to be infidels who should be murdered. This is essentially a place where they're taught to kill with the blessing of the Muslim clergy. Recently, for example, and this gets the headlines, the uh, the author Salman Rushdie was attacked just last week because of an open fatwa 
a religious order issued against him back in 1989. Last February, a scholar from Al-Hazar University issued a fatwa excommuning from Islam any moderate Muslim. And one particular one, his name was Abraham Ibrahim Isa, he's a moderate Muslim author and commentator, and not only was he excommunicated, but they ordered his killing. So at the bottom line, the Muslim Brotherhood benefits from the West's ethnocentric arrogance. It maintains willful ignorance about the organization. Jihadist groups conceal their operational discourse in Islamic terminology, religious edicts, and sermons precisely because they are obscure and not understood or paid attention to by Westerners. In other words, Westerners will believe what Islamists tell them in English and disregard what the Islamists are saying to the uh, people in either their native language or buried in the communication techniques. But the truth of the matter is that the West can no longer remain ignorant of the Muslim Brotherhood's game plan. American policymakers can no longer willfully disregard the dangers lurking in plain sight. Truth of the matter is, the United States has to work to dismantle the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the father of the base of all the other organizations. In other words, the United States should work together with the Egyptian government to cleanse Al-Azhar University of the Islamic radical ideologues who develop and legitimize jihadism. Until this issue is taken seriously, there'll be a continuing flow of Islamic mayhem and murder. In other words, I myself, until I read some details about the Muslim Brotherhood, I didn't realize that it is the father of the other terrorist organizations, and the place where it does its educating is Al-Azhar University in Cairo, the, the apparently the Egyptian government is um, is uh, aware of this. As a matter of fact, last year the Egyptian president Al Sisi say, said the Muslim Brotherhood has been eating away at the mind and body of Egypt for ninety years. Why the Egyptians themselves don't c- close the university? I guess is because they're afraid of rioting. But it turns out that the the um, ideo- ideology of the radical Islam has a base of education, and that is in the Azhar University in Cairo, and it's something that I myself was not aware of, and I share this information with the listeners because it's something that we should be aware of and concerned about. The next item is very short, but I think is of tremendous interest. Uh, Earlier this week, a federal judge in New York um, rejected Ben & Jerry Ice Cream Company's attempt 
to force its parent company called Unilever to immediately stop selling or marketing its ice cream in the West Bank. The 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 home the parent company uh, wanted to stop selling in what they considered occupied territory, and the whole thing, without going into the details, became uh, a very public discussion and a court case. And Ben and Jerry's is uh, based in Vermont. It has a factory here in Israel, and uh, the, their ice cream is very good. We, I love it. Uh, the uh, anyhow, the uh, the they sued Ben and Jerry sued Unilever in July to try to stop the sale of his Israeli business to the local licensee, a guy named Avi Zinger. Unilever's sale to Zinger keeps the ice cream for sale in the West Bank, which Ben and Jerry's has said is inconsistent with its values. In other words, the values of Ben and Jerry's uh, uh, owners say is that they don't want their uh, ice cream sold to Jews and Arabs who live in the West Bank. So the court ruled against that. So those friends of mine who live in places like Carnation, where I have a daughter and her family, can continue to enjoy Ben and Jerry's as living in that area also can enjoy the ice cream. So that's good news. Another interesting item that you don't see in the headlines it's way back in the back pages of the paper, is the fact that a program for employing Jerusalem Arabs in public sector has been launched. The, uh, there is a dismal employment situation for the Arab population of East Jerusalem, so the Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Ministry is launching a trial program for training East Jerusalem Arabs for jobs in the public sector, including in the municipality of Jerusalem, state-owned companies, and government ministries. The program will be run by an organization called the Yesodot Center, and will initially provide practical training for about 70 participants, Arabs from East Jerusalem, in order to train them to work in the public sector. The training will include meetings with people working in the public and social sectors, familiarization with platforms or work skills applicable to the public sector, and study of basic issues concerning Israel's population, with a stress on the history and culture of the various groups in Israeli society. The program will run for about three years. It will cost a million shekel. Participants will initially undergo group training for a few months, and then they'll get work experience in government ministries and in the public sector with individual personalized coaching. At the end of the training period, participants will immediately be placed in public sector jobs. In other words, the bottom line is 
that the municipality of Jerusalem wants to train Jerusalem Arabs so that they can find work in the public sector. When you hear all this propaganda about how uh, Israel treats the Palestinians, on the contrary, they're trying, particularly here in Jerusalem, they're try, trying to raise the standards of the Arabs by giving them the skills to work in the public, um, in the public sector. The, the population of East Jerusalem, that is the Arabs, they suffer from disadvantages when it comes to employment. The, uh, it, the uh, Arab population uh, of East Jerusalem, by the way, according to a research study, the Arab population of East Jerusalem was better educated than the rest of the Arab population in Israel, which I found to be rather interesting. So uh, the, uh, the the they want very much to upgrade the ability of the Arabs in Jerusalem, who already are are somewhat better educated than Arabs in other parts of Israel. So they want to upgrade their ability so they can earn decent salaries for their families. The um, the municipality of Jerusalem put out a statement that said the following. The state of Israel has a substantial interest in integrating the residents of East Jerusalem into the high-quality employment market, including the public uh, sector. And the uh, one in charge of that for the city hall said, and I quote, I'm sure that integrating this population into field roles dealing with the public will improve the service received by the residents. So the, the truth of the matter is that if you train these East Jerusalem Arabs uh, and upgrade their abilities, particularly in the social work and things of that nature, they in turn will be able to upgrade the status of the, the rest of the Arab population here in Jerusalem. Because the goal is to narrow the gaps between the Jews and the Arab residents here in Jerusalem. And that is the plan is. And by the way, that's separate from a five-year plan for Arab Israelis in general. The the plan for upgrading Arab Israelis, it costs like uh, 2.1 billion shekels. And the intention is to present a new plan with with uh, more budget, because as long as the Arabs are going to be where they are, integrated into the public, into our public here in Israel, the idea is to spend money to upgrade their abilities so they can serve their own communities as well as the general communities in mixed areas such as Jerusalem. So even though you read all this uh, terrible propaganda 
about how Israel is treating the Arabs, not only is that wrong, but on the contrary, Israel is spending millions of shekels to upgrade the Arab population so that the, there will be people who will serve the general public and, in particular, serve the Arab population itself. So despite all the propaganda, on the contrary, Israel is doing what it can. The Arabs are here. We're not going to get rid of them very easily. So the idea is let's upgrade them, make them good citizens for themselves and for the communities in which they live and for the general community, uh, particularly of the mixed cities. So Israel is doing what it can. And uh, I think all of that is in spite of the terrible propaganda you hear against Israel. Israel um, doing under the headlines, you don't read much about it. As a matter of fact, uh, the information, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, I found in the newspaper on page 8, way in the back. And it's something that's really important. More people should know about it. So, uh, again, thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro, signing off until next time. Take care of yourselves. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 